and gentlemen, welcome to the Source Material Comics Podcast. This evening, we are going to be celebrating the life of one Stan Lee. What we have planned to do this evening is we're going to be discussing some Stan Lee written Marvel material and then a little bit of a bonus surprise here at the end. We'll talk about that as we get to it. But uh, I think this is also... We're going to use this as Superblog team-up material, right, Evan? That is correct. Okay. Uh, we All should right. be putting this out on or about what would have been Stan the Man Lee's 100th birthday. 100th birthday. Wow. They don't call him Stan the Man for nothing. This is a guy that is synonymous with Marvel Comics. We are going to discuss three stories that were written uh all three of these were written in the 60s right yeah yeah very okay. early on in the uh the so-called marvel age of comics so you and i spitballed like okay what do we what are we going to talk about how are we going to do this you started throwing some ideas my way and what we landed on were some very early stanley stories that took place in three different books the first one is a story takes place in fantastic four number 12 this is the first meeting uh between the thing and the hulk and specifically the fantastic four as well and the incredible hulk and this is something that way back in the day i'd never read this comic but i covered hulk thing hard knocks uh -huh. i don't know if you i don't know if you've read that but I don't, uh, I don't think I read it. I remember I remember it had some very distinctive covers. This issue, Fantastic Four number 12, is talked about in that very same series. So this is the first time I've actually sat down and read this. I knew it existed, of course, but just never read this. So that's, that's going to be our first story we're talking about tonight. So that's Fantastic Four number 12. Our second story will be X-Men number 9. And the then first we're, meeting between the X-Men and the Avengers. That's right. And if you haven't figured it out, folks, there's a bit of a theme here. It is some meetings of heroes in the Marvel Universe that Stan the Man Lee had a chance to author. Our third story we're going to be talking about comes from Spider-Man Annual Number 2. This is Spider-Man and Doctor Strange uh, in a story titled The Wondrous World of Doctor Strange. So I'll go ahead and cover the first book, then Evan's going to cover X-Men Number 9, and, I, and then I'll, I'll wrap us up with uh, what happens in The Wondrous World of Doctor Strange. You know, like I said, these, these are first meetings of these characters, and one of the, the cool things about Marvel Comics has always been you know, kind of the shared world. And these are all characters that, well, with the exception of Captain America, they're all characters that, that Stan Lee co-created. You know, he absolutely could not have done any of this without guys like Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko. And I, th I think that's sometimes why Stan gets a bad rap is that people tend to think the artists get downplayed. And I mean, I, I've known ever since I was a kid reading comics, you don't have, you don't have comics without the art. So uh, right. this was a, a collaborative effort, but Stan was just, I mean, he was, he was a, a, a legendary figure. He, he was comics to, to a lot of people. If I can go on a mild tangent, Please. I uh, went to Chicago comic con um, in 1998. It was a graduation present from my mom. My friend and I got to the Marvel booth uh, one morning and we were trying to see who was going to be signing when and plot out our day. And I heard this voice I recognized. This was way back in 1998 when there weren't, you know, comic books all over TVs and movie screens. So, right. so what voice would I recognize at a comic convention? You know, the, this it was all mostly comics. It wasn't, you know, the place for TV shows and movies to be announced and things like that. Mm -hmm. Stan Lee was at the Marvel booth, just showed up a little early, started talking to people. Wow. Huge line formed. 
And my friend and I were like, oh, dude, we got to get Stan Lee to sign something. But what? So I'm looking through it. I'm like, what What do I have? That, did I bring anything that Stan wrote? You know, I, d- I didn't expect I'd get anywhere near him. And uh, so, you know, we, we were digging through. My friend took a couple pictures and I'm like, OK, well, we just got to get in line. Let's just get in line. So we go over. They pulled the rope. We were the first people cut from the line. Oh, and oh. Uh, hours later, like three hours before he was supposed to sign, the line was already around the building. Oh my and God. so we just kind of threw up our hands. But at some point, I realized that most of the comics I had with me were Marvel comics. And Jesse, what did every Marvel comic for decades say on its title page? Presented by Stan Lee. So his name was on, like, everything I had there. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can get this signed. It'd be okay. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, but the, the, the point was, you know, in a time before comics were comic book material was as big as, as it was now just his voice over a crowd yeah. that was so familiar that was comics to me from narrating those uh, cartoons when i was a kid spider-man and his amazing friends and the incredible hulk so yeah j- just just that voice i mean he he helped make marvel and helped make comics uh, what they are not not alone certainly but um right, right can't overstate what he what he means to comics right man stan lee was this mythical figure that was on every single marvel comic uh when you were looking at it it wasn't hard to find his name being you know right there front and center as soon as you opened up that comic book this is going to be a a fun show Uh, we're going to have the opportunity to talk about some of the silly stuff that happened in the 60s uh and definitely uh (laughs) what because there i have a few notes but uh, also see the early days of some of these characters this is an era that doesn't get really uh much of a spotlight shown here on the source material podcast this may actually be some of the oldest comics i've covered i've covered some stuff in the 70s and i don't think i've gone back to the 60s on here so this may be a first for us too so all right all right you ready yes sir let's head into it here all right so fantastic four number 12 went to mike's amazing world of comics see what kind of info we could pop up here cover dated march of 1963 on sale date december 10th 1962 60 years ago almost very close we're about two weeks from 60 years ago to the day that this thing was on the shelf. The title is Fantastic Four, but the title of the story is The Incredible Hulk, apparently, <laughs> according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, written by Stan Lee, penciled by Jack Kirby, inked by Dick Ayers, and lettered by Artie Simek. Now, this thing is divided up into three parts, or maybe it's four, four parts. I want to do my best quick synopsis here as as, mm-hmm. as best as I can. So just kind of bear with me and then we'll kind of get into uh, uh, some of the particulars here. So our first part opens up with Ben and Alicia uh, coming out of uh, Ben, by the way, who is, you know, full thing at this point. He is he is the thing, uh, the ever loving blue eyed thing walking mm-hmm. out of this musical concert, classic musical concert that they just uh, uh, they had just experienced. And they run into a group of inf- infantrymen who mistake the thing for the Incredible Hulk and attack him. But once cooler heads prevail, they realize there's been a mistake made. Thing heads back to the Baxter building, uh, only to find out that General Thunderbolt Ross is arriving soon to enlist the Fantastic Four's help. Ross explains that the Hulk has been responsible for the destruction of some high-end military weaponry, and he needs their assistance to capture and destroy him. In our second part, General Ross gets a ride in the newly revamped Fantastic Car. Uh, the Fantastic Four bring him back to the Army's base of operations, where they meet with the, mil- uh, with the team, helping them capture the Hulk. One member of that team is Dr. Bruce Banner. He (laughs) believes that the Hulk is not responsible for the recent destruction as the weaponry has been demolished from the inside out, not the outside in. 
Banner has coined this potential saboteur as the wrecker. Now, in our third part, the thing busts into the conference room. So he's sitting out cooling his heels while these guys are talking. He's had enough of sitting there and trying to be patient. Busts into the conference room. Reed has to try and calm things down as Ben is not helping matters much with his attitude. It gets worse when General Ross accuses the thing of being scared of the Hulk, which in turn enrages Ben so much he tears Ross's collection of phone books in half. <laughs> His phone books, folks. During Ben's outburst, one member of the team, Carl Court, ends up losing his wallet, which ends up in the hands of Rick Jones. Planning to return it to him, Rick opens the wallet to find Carl is a card-carrying communist. <laughs> before he gets, uh, before he can get this information to Hulk, Carl takes Rick hostage. In our fourth and final part, waiting for the Wreckers' next move, the Fantastic Four kill some time working on a rocket sled the military was preparing for some tests. Reed now has it ready to go, and Ben hops in and accelerates to an insane speed, only to find the tracks at the end have once again been sabotaged by the Wrecker. Thinking quickly, the Human Torch flies into action, grabbing Thing as he is in the air. Banner arrives and pleads for them to help find the Wrecker, as he thinks he has Rick Jones as a hostage. No one believes him, so Banner retreats to look over the ransom note he found, telling the Hulk to get rid of the Fantastic Four, or Rick will never be seen again. Now Banner feels there is no choice but to use a gamma ray device to once again turn into the Hulk. Tracking the Wrecker to the tunnels beneath the desert, Hulk and the Fantastic Four end up finding each other. The Fantastic Four attempt to capture him, but three of the four are leveled when Hulk unleashes a massive thunderclap, leaving the Thing and the Hulk to square off. However, during the tussle, the Hulk is hit in the head with a ray from one of Wrecker's robots, knocking him out. The Thing turns his attention to this new threat. He dismantles the machine. They find Carl Court and rescue Rick Jones. As the Hulk awakens, he leaves the scene before he's found, and the Fantastic Four are honored in a ceremony by the military, and the Hulk wonders when... You will run into them again. So there you go. That is Fantastic Four number 12. Man, oh man. So I'm going to start things out here. And we'll, okay. the thing, okay, just a bit of a hothead. <laughs> a little just bit. a bit. <laughs> I'm used to reading the thing in the 80s and the 90s. And, you know, obviously recently where you and I have covered some Fantastic Four and the thing comics as well. He's mellowed a little. Yes, he definitely has. I, you know, this we start out as like, I don't know, second page. Some guy is like, hey, look at those infantrymen and points to the infantrymen over Ben's shoulder. And Ben grabs this guy and like, hey, stop pointing or you just about poked me. I'm like, you're made of rock, dude. But anyway, he picks this guy <laughs> up and holds him up in the air. I'm like, my goodness, Ben, chill out, dude. It's all right. But of course, that's what gets the infantry is uh, attention. Uh, but yeah, he's he's definitely a little hothead. What, what what do you think of Stanley writing thing here? Well, I know one of the big things that people praised early on with his writing of the Fantastic Four was it wasn't like this perfect family or or team dynamic. You know, the the thing and the torch were always arguing, and and that continues today. But you know, the things temper and just his his anger at being disfigured and everybody got powers but he's the only guy that can't blend in that was always a big focus um in in those early stories so it's it's pretty consistent it is a little uh he does have kind of a hair trigger on on that temper it's neat the way the way they write him with uh such a sense of humor and he's got this confidence and yet he's also really self-conscious about his appearance and about being thought of as, as nothing more than a monster. So he's not, he's, he's not this one dimensional character. He's he's always got some, you know, kind of like confident dialogue and, and things like that, but he, he gets easily frustrated. His dialogue itself. Like when you look at it, he's, 
he still has that. Is it a New York kind of like uh, accent yeah. or, you know, that that's definitely written into his the way that he speaks. Uh, so that didn't feel too far from the man. Yeah, I, I just thought wow, he is quick tempered. There's one point in the story where he, he doesn't want to wait on a door to open. And he just rips it off at the Baxter building. There's something oh, yeah. he needs, like some kind Climbs of Climbs up the elevator shaft. This <laughs> is like, you know what? I'm tired of waiting for the elevator. Rips the door off and then climbs up the pole. I think he had to have some kind of key. But either way, he was so frustrated. He's just like, okay, I'm ri- I'm ripping this door off. And then, of course, you know, like I said, he the meeting with General Ross, he he just grows impatient from waiting outside. And like, and what's funny is uh, Johnny storm is just like, Oh yeah, here we go. Let's get some action going. I'm like, dude, you're supposed yeah. to be working with the military here. What are you cheering for Ben for? Yeah. Well, um, that was, um, I guess a little need for conflict. And, uh, so, some of this, I wondered as I, as I was reading, um, some of this, how much of it might be the result of, you know, what they called the Marvel method of, of making comics where, uh, Stan would give like, you know, a general plot outline, the artist would draw it and then he would fill in the dialogue. So some of it may have been kind of, you know, the artist's interpretation of what Stan said and then Stan's take on, on what the artist, the artist drew, you know, in, in that scene where torch is flying around and, and thing busts down the door, then, uh, the invisible girl, I'm not being sexist. That's what she was called at this point. <laughs> is is disarming the soldier, and he says, "A voice from nowhere. This place is haunted." Yeah. <laughs> I just feel like he needed to say something there. You know, right. You got to know right. what the Fantastic Four is 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 doing, but yeah, it's pr- right. pretty pretty interesting and and amusing. It's well, you know what's what's great about this is this company at this time, these titles at this time are so new. I mean, if this is a I don't even know if this was a monthly schedule back then. I assume that's what they were trying for. But I mean, we're one year into the Fantastic Four at this point. Oh yeah. Uh, so just just to think about how new these ideas are that they're coming up with, and the leaps and bounds that happen in the next sixty years in writing and telling these stories. It's it's great to see where it all started and how you know what it was all like. They had just gone monthly at, at this point. They, uh, it was bi-monthly for a while. I'm looking oh, it okay. up on uh, Marvel Unlimited. And then uh, September of 1962 with issue six, well, issue seven in October, they went monthly. Okay. So my next note is Sue was so scared of just a presentation of the Hulk that she invisibled herself. <laughs> <laughs> and and that that is weird when you think of the invisible woman now as I mean, you know, everybody, even Dr. Doom pretty much says she's the most powerful member of the Fantastic Four, the most dangerous one. Right. Right. because um, all the all the stuff she can do. I mean, at this point I think she was just turning invisible. There were no force fields or anything like that. Once you stop looking at her as the way she is now. I I, I thought that was kind of cool. Just, just a nice a nice moment like, oh yeah, the the Hulk's you know, the Fantastic Four is still pretty new at this, and the Hulk's so so disturbing that it actually frightens her. Right. Um, right. And it gives gives a chance. Um, I noticed in some of these there were a lot of little moments where it was like, "Hey, we're going to go ahead and remind you what this character's powers are." You know. Yeah. And so, you know, we've we've seen the thing fight people, tear up stuff. We see Mister Fantastic stretch. Oh, she turns invisible. Here, here's an example. That has one of my favorite um, poorly aged comic lines uh, in that sequence where they they start talking about how each of them would defeat the Hulk individually. And you get the thing showing, telling how he would do it and the torch and Mr. Fantastic. And then we go to Sue. She (laughs) says, looks as though I'll just be going along for the ride. I'm not sure how I can help. And Thunderbolt Ross, uh, progressive, uh, 
you know, in in the uh, Battle of the Sexes, says, Harumph, Miss Storm, a pretty young lady can always be of help just by keeping the men's morale up. <laughs> and just as you're rolling your eyes, in comes her future husband, Mr. Fantastic. Well, that's just the way we feel about Sue, General. Uh, Stanley writing women in the 60s. I mean, this is the 60s. I'm not going into this thinking, oh, well, what, what in the world? Yeah, well, how it's could not they like Stanley's you know? this horrible sexist, uh, no. you know, outlier. Right, and right, I mean, we right. do see Sue uh, do some stuff with with her invisibility power in in this issue. She yeah. she does do more than just stand around and keep everybody's morale up. That's right. That's right. My next note is that a flame lasso does <laughs> I wouldn't think work like that. You know, you can't just pick up a wallet and not expect to incinerate it immediately with a flame lasso. Uh, there, Johnny Storm. So, Jesse, um, have you ever used a flame lasso to pick up a wallet? Uh, I, have you, you ever know, tried it? Here's the thing, stupid me. Wait, wait till we get to uh, the uh, the rocket sled because I've got math. All right, just be ready. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> but no, I was sitting here. I'm like, okay, is there a possible way? Like, I guess there's a possible way. Like, you could use the heat to like raise it up somehow and create some kind of like weird wind. Either way, no, I haven't. So there you go. Uh, I, I think Stan had a habit of just uh, taking things that sounded cool. Like, I, I wish I had looked this up, but I think he explained once that he just kind of like heard of gamma rays. Oh, really? And he didn't really know anything about them. And was like, oh, that's, that sounds good. Let's make that what gives the Hulk his power. And um, I know a lot of times with Iron Man, he'll mention his transistor powered suit as, as if that explains how Iron Man can do all the things he can do. So he was just like, yep, flame lasso. Works for me. Uh, in that sequence, before they go out to the uh, to the desert to look for the Hulk, I don't I don't know if uh, the term meta had been used very much back then, but there there were, there were some meta moments like when they uh, show Thunderbolt Ross the Fantastic Car, and they said, "Well, yeah, some of our fans wrote in and said it looked like a flying bathtub." Yes, yes. Are they actually addressing legitimate fan concerns with the Fantastic Car? And I bet I, you I they were. Say, I, th- I think they were. I I remember that. Before I ever read this entire issue, I had a comic, Marvel Saga number seven, that re- or maybe it was number eight. Anyway, issue of Marvel Saga that like reprinted early stories and you know kind of fit them all together. And so it had panels from some of these early comics, and this was this was one of them. So even though it was a while before I read this actual issue, some of these panels are like burned into my brain for you know thirty <laughs> some years. And uh, th- that talking about the Fantastic Car as a flying bathtub was was one of them. And then even when they fly. To, to the West, it says, oh, the exact flying time was withheld at the request of Reed Richards because uh, <laughs> it, it, it made some mention of, you know, well, we don't, it's top secret. We don't want to let people know exactly how fast this thing can go. Right. And it was just, just fun little, uh, little notes like that. I don't know if that was par for the course in, in comics. It, it, it's something that, that feels kind of modern with all the, you know, winking inside jokes and, and meta stuff we have now, but it feels kind of modern and novel uh, even 60 years later. Thing straps himself into the rocket sled. Now, I guess we got to get from point A to point B here, uh, which, you know, this felt like, I don't know why they decided to put this in here, but all right. I mean, I guess they had to. One more thing for the record to wreck. Yeah. Thing gets in this rocket sled and he's he's going really, really fast after they activate it. And he's up to 50 G's, according to one guy. Uh, so there's there's a guy who's sitting there monitoring monitoring it and says that the thing is up to 50 G's. Normally that would flatten a, a human being, according to that person. He is 
able to withstand the G's, and it even it even looks like he's whistling. <laughs> so here we go. All right, you ready? All right. Okay. How fast is G force in miles per hour? This is the answer. I hope that's a rhetorical question because I did <laughs> not is. study for this. Exam. I have, I have, I have the answers. Okay. Uh, so, so normal humans can withstand, according to what I've read, normal humans can withstand no more than nine Gs. Even and it says, and even that for only a few seconds. One G force is equivalent to twenty-two miles per hour. Ben is up to fifty Gs, which means he's going one thousand one hundred miles per hour. Now, the speed of sound is 760 miles per hour, and I don't think the thing can hear himself whistle. <laughs> <laughs> but he's trying. <laughs> uh, anyway, that was all I had really for that. I, I you know, I, I, I don't know uh, much about the behind the scenes writing of this, but I'm pretty sure you put more research into that than Stan Lee did. <laughs> the final note that I have for this issue is we finally get the Hulk versus thing, you know, things been talking up a big game, this whole issue, and it, it's going down. This is our very first battle between these two frenemies, if you will. They, they're all, they're usually, usually on the same side, but my goodness, if they can throw down, they will throw down. We right here, we get our first interaction of uh, our Hulk versus thing. So what do you think of the, the first fight between these two uh, behemoths? Well, first of all, since we're we're talking about Stan Lee, I, I got to give him credit. He was known for his uh, bombastic verbiage and uh, really talking stuff up, but I think he nailed it when the Hulk steps in front of the thing. It says, and then one of the most dramatic moments in the history of adventure fantasy occurs. It as really the incredible is. Hulk suddenly hurls himself into the open face to face with the mighty thing. Yeah, yeah. That's and that a pretty is, accurate description. I remember reading that, too. I'm going, you know, you have no idea that what you're saying is something that, you know, for 60 years will actually continue to be true. <laughs> it I really mean, this, is. This is one of the greatest rivalries in comics. Um, it is. And usually the Hulk wins or the fight ends on a technicality, like that that laser mm -hmm. co coming up because, you know, the, the thing... He says, hey, what happened? I didn't even land my la my last punch. I must be better than I thought I was. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, which which is some of that false bravado that, that Ben Grimm uh, comes up with from, from time to time. But you really get the Hulk taking on the whole Fantastic Four, not just the thing, even though the Hulk versus thing matchup is what a lot of us think of. But you, you see the whole team really well, maybe with the exception of Sue, but you, you see the <laughs> she torch. She's invisible. <laughs> yeah, and and the Hulk can't find her, so you know, right. um, it it's it's effective. But I mean, you know, you get the you get get the thing getting the, a good uh, punch in there on on the Hulk, and then uh, yeah, the fight kind of ends prematurely. Right, and the thing takes care of business, uh, going after the Wrecker's robot, not to be confused with the magic crowbar wielding Wrecker. Yeah, that was one thing in my synopsis. I was like, should I make a distinction? But uh, you know, I made sure to Carl Court. Not the record that we all know. Uh, this guy, by the way, that I yeah, I've got I've got his Marvel fandom wiki here. Doesn't Carl Court does not have too many appearances. Okay, um, just to, just to kind of flesh that out. It's not like he makes a big comeback in the '70s or something. This guy has a total of three 
four appearances of Carl Court. Let's go ahead and take a look and see what we got. Fantastic Four, Volume 1, Number 12, Hulk Thing, Hard Knocks, uh, as I mentioned earlier. Yeah, and then uh, Hulk Grand Design, Monster Volume 1. I don't, don't know what that is. Grand Design, okay, Monster. Grand Design is when they get, uh, like, certain, uh, I don't know if it's indie artists, but, but uh, really d- distinctive artists and kind of go through and do a character or a title's kind of history. So I know they've done it with X-Men and Fantastic Four and Hulk. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so it was a flashback. Gotcha. Um, so that's it. Carl yeah. Ford. Not a not well, a uh, not a large part of the history other than when, this. When you literally carry the card for your subversive pro communist organization in your wallet. <laughs> um <laughs> I know. I was like, this idiot, like uh, you know, oh well, you know, if you get pulled over and they ask you for your <laughs> license and you hand them their your wallet. Let me take this communist card out of here, sir. Yeah. Hold on just a second. Three pages of Hulk versus the Fantastic Four. Um, I mean, you know, got it. Got got some some good action in there. You know, the the Fantastic Four find find the real villain, and who finishes him off? It's uh, it's Sue, the Invisible Karate Chop, that disarms him and uh, allows the Thing to take him into custody. Iconic issue, really. It really is like one of the uh, more iconic. Uh, issues uh, anything from the 60s is always sought after but i know that if i had my shot on what i wanted from the 60s this is probably making the top 10 for sure oh yeah it's Um, it's loads of fun and then i mean this the hulk thing rivalry has kept going Uh, i think the first time the thing officially won was just a few years ago in uh, dan slot's run of fantastic four so, now, you know, uh, and the Hulk wasn't gray seven. or anything like that. We don't have any gray Hulk going on or anything like that. The latest uh, battle was in um, pretty early in slots run on Fantastic Four when the Thing and Alicia were on their honeymoon and the puppet master mind controlled the Hulk. And this was the the immortal Hulk, the uh, you know pseudo horror version of the Hulk tearing after the Thing on his honeymoon out of control. Then the thing w- was on his own. No Fantastic Four to help. It's, it's a pretty good one. Good. So that is our first issue. Now let's head into X-Men number nine. I know that you have the synopsis ready for this one. So I will step back, sir. You have the floor. All right. And uh, like you, I went to Mike's Amazing World to get the particulars here. Uh, X-Men volume one, number nine. Uh, went on sale November 3rd, 1964. Uh, written by Stan Lee, penciled by Jack Kirby, inked by Chick Stone, and lettered by Sam Rosen. So we open as a cruise ship narrowly avoids a collision with an iceberg thanks to the timely intervention of Cyclops. The X-Men are aboard, bound for a rendezvous in southeastern Europe with Professor X, who is on the trail of Lucifer, the villain who cost him the use of his legs. Using a motorized rig that puts his animated series hover chair to shame, the -hmm. professor enters Lucifer's underground lair, only to be taken prisoner by the villain's artificial dust devil. (laughs) (laughs) The most powerful mutant telepath responds, as you might expect, by drawing a gun and opening fire, but Lucifer warns him that if he is harmed, the world is doomed. Back on the surface, Thor and the Avengers arrive, hot on the trail of some evil impulses being detected by Mjolnir. They try to ward an American sightseer away from what could be a dangerous area, but frighten the poor guy so much that he drives off babbling about flying creatures and giants 
just where the X-Men can hear him. While they go to investigate, Lucifer explains to Professor X that he's got a bomb powerful enough to blow up a continent, and it will detonate if his heart stops. The Professor is able to warn the X-Men before Lucifer blasts them with an ionic ray, but he doesn't have time to explain the full situation. As the Avengers arrive looking to stop whatever evil threat is lurking, rather permanently, Xavier warns his charges that Lucifer must not be harmed. This leads to that time-honored comic book tradition of heroes meeting for the first time and fighting. Xavier manages to subdue Lucifer without stopping or significantly altering his heartbeat, then telepathically fills Thor in on the situation just before he turns poor Bobby Drake into crushed ice. <laughs> then the Avengers vote to let the X-Men handle this their way and exit stage right. Yes, they do. Xavier and the X-Men work to disable the bomb, which the Professor warns would destroy Antarctica and flood the world. With Professor X guiding him and Lucifer's heart rate starting to change, Cyclops punches a precision I-beam into the device and disables its fuse. Then, satisfied that Lucifer has been defeated and humbled, and pledging never to harm a human being, the X-Men let the villain go. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. We'll just talk about the cover real quick before I, I, I let you go here. But our, our cover shows, obviously, you know, it's, it's the Avengers and the X-Men squaring off right there on the front. Underground is Professor X versus Lucifer. Professor X with the gun, not <laughs> what I'm used to seeing, and this tank of a chair, which looks just completely awesome. Um, yeah, but, yeah. I mean, that's what stood out to me when I was looking at this. Not, not the fact that we got two iconic teams facing off it's professor x with a gun and a tank of a chair so really, <laughs> there is a really lot good. happening on that cover yeah there is i mean a lot a lot okay go ahead with your notes sir i'll let you go first still not used to seeing uh, professor x on his own as as the action hero so to speak i mean every now and again you get it but i i would have thought that would have been a more modern development I would have thought mm -hmm. he just kind of sat back and guided things uh, in the 60s, but apparently I was wrong. And, yeah. and yeah, the the idea of Professor X uh, br bringing a gun, you know, they, they make it clear that, you know, Professor X is telepathic, but a, a lot of times the dialogue and the, the captions talk about how powerful his mind is, and it seems to include his intelligence and, and stuff like that. So it's another one of these cases, like you were talking about with Fantastic Four, where these characters are almost, you know, kind of still be informed. You know, we know exactly what we think Professor X would do in certain situations, and he, he wasn't there yet uh, right. at, at this point. Right. So, um, and speaking of maybe dubious uh, powers, this is the first time I've ever seen uh, the Avengers travel cross-country based on the evil impulses that Mjolnir Right. Has. I was one of my notes here is like, Mjolnir is an evil divination rod. Like, he's just holding it out there, and he's all, oh, oh, it's quivering right now. We're stopping here because it must be, Lucifer uh, must be like, a pretty epic bad guy if that's the case just from what i was reading because i went to marvel fandom and i was like okay let's let's take a look at the history of this lucifer guy certainly there's a storied history well you know we're only at x-men number nine and yeah it turns out that this is lucifer's first appearance why in the world is chuck after this guy I'm sure that was going on in the first issue or the previous issue, but no, that's not the case. Of course, it says they're on the cover and wait till you meet Lucifer. Well, I felt well, like there was a history. Yeah, well, th there, there is. A, it's it's kind of implied. I mean, they, they say that 
that this is the guy who cost Professor X the use of his right. legs, but but they don't say how. So it, it, it's kind of neat to see you know the the mystery sort of built again. Talking about my impressions without necessarily reading a lot of these, I figured most of these were just one and done stories. I did go back and kind of on the Marvel Unlimited app and just look through issue eight, and Professor X was already in Europe on the trail of, I don't know if they specifically mentioned Lucifer, but I mean, this was being set up in the last issue. I mean, as, as far as, uh, as Mjolnir, it's, it's similar to the flame lasso or professor X's mind powers. It's whatever, whatever we need, uh, for the story to work. Whatever. You know, you and I grew up with the Marvel trading cards and official handbooks where they quantified everything everybody could do. This was just, you know, whatever Stan and company were coming up with, uh, in, in their imaginations to, to make their story work. We needed the Avengers to show up in Europe. And uh, so, well, Thor's got a magic hammer. Let's let's do use that. That isn't as far fetched as the artificial dust devil, but I won't bring that up. Uh, which <laughs> I mean, I, that was just hilarious. Professor X has gone along in his tank wheelchair, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes this dust devil underneath the ground. And sure enough, it was because Lucifer set that up. I kind of lost the thread a little bit when Lucifer was like, "All right, I'm going to hit your X Men with the mental ionic ray." <laughs> I'm like, OK, yeah, this is getting fantastical, pretty sure uh, this is uh, this is out there. Uh, but, yeah, you're right. We get the uh, typical hero versus hero fight before. Well, these guys don't even team up, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Thor's like, OK, guys, let's vote. And, it, and then Cap's like, it's got to be unanimous. Are we going to let the X-Men go and find out what's going on with Lucifer? And the X-Men are like, you know, we want to do it ourselves, which I understand. They're a young team. They want to prove probably prove themselves. They don't need anybody's help. Regardless, you'd think, hey, it's the Avengers. Why don't you guys come and help us take this guy down? I, I don't understand why they decided they didn't want their help unless they were just that jaded uh, by the fact that they, of course, had a run in and started battling them. But put my money on the Avengers at this point. This battle would have went down and went the distance. My money would have been on the Avengers easy. I did like the touch at one point where it was Hank, Giant Man versus Hank. Yeah, boy, <laughs> I just figured that out. So we had the battle of the Hanks, um, <laughs> Hank Pym versus Hank McCoy. He's giant man mode. He's got a hold of Beast by the scruff of his uh, his uh, outfit there. And there's a point where Beast is like, "Hey, do me a favor and don't talk while you're so <laughs> la- while you're so big because your voice is deafening." Yeah, and I was like, I've never thought of that. Like, it would be extremely loud because his la- everything, his voice box, is, I think he says his larynx, his larynx gets so big that mm. it, you know, it's just so booming. So that leads into a great page where it's about two thirds of the page is Kirby just drawing the teams fighting. Uh, not much in, in the background, but it's just this real busy scene but you you see them all kind of interacting and it's not just a clean one-on-one fight you've got iron man lining up to take a shot at Iceman while he's trying to take out giant man while beast is dodging him and you got some some great dialogue like the wasp going after marvel girl saying if i can just reach that titian haired tigress in time yeah <laughs> oh man we got yeah everybody's on this page everybody is battling it out and then you have Iceman talking trash to Thor. Go fly a kite, Curly Locks. You're too square to scare anyone. <laughs> ah, the 60s. Some some of its time dialogue. Very. Uh, Rick Jones was a hip cat in the oh, Fantastic Four. 
you know, he was in the Fantastic Four book that we were reading. Captain America, though, stays true to the 40s. Young fella, I have a collection of warnings that would make your eyes pop. <laughs> Young fella. But, you know, we, we laugh um, at, at some of the uh, the aged dialogue, but there's also some, some cool details in here, like the scene where Cyclops blasts the hammer out of Thor's hand and Angel goes to pick it up. And, and he, he can't and there's you know there's not an asterisk or whatever explaining it but it's just you know that 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 detail that nobody or very few people yeah. can can lift Thor's hammer and even you know when the Avengers vote to to leave and talk about the rotating chairmanship that that gives you an idea of how the Avengers work even if you've not read their book and I'm sure they were probably hoping that if you liked this maybe you'll check out an issue of the Avengers as the Avengers are leaving Wasp says it wasn't all a waste I did get to meet that dreamy angel and then she thinks oh I'm wasting my time as usual Hank is too smart to act jealous so there's all these neat little details and character moments you know that that I'm sure you could find over in in the Avengers book I mean, it, it helps that the same guy's writing both of them right but it, it's it's cool for for all the dialogue that gets in here and some of the stuff that, that makes us snicker, it's it's cool to see the effort at, at building that world and keeping those characters consistent. Yeah, yeah, that was my uh, other note I had mentioned earlier about the female dialogue uh, coming from Stan Lee <laughs> and how Janet is like shooting to try and make Hank jealous. And oh my goodness, <laughs> I just can't get him to be jealous. Just like uh, the Invisible Woman, they, they have gone back and done right by Janet. I mean, you know, she's led the Avengers. Oh yeah, um, and she's 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 held her own before. But yeah, so some of these early ones, it's it's a little cringy. Learning that Lucifer was the reason for Professor uh, X's legs being crushed and paralysis, basically the reason why he's in a wheelchair. I had no idea. I didn't know. Is this something you knew going into this issue? I did. I think I learned that, uh, like so many things from the old TSR Marvel role-playing game. There's an entry on Lucifer in there. I don't remember ever seeing Lucifer in an in an issue, or I I, I think I think I did it at one point in in some essential X-Men volumes, but I I didn't I couldn't have picked him out of a lineup. Yeah, I me either. But yes, yeah. I, I I did know that he was responsible for Professor X being paralyzed the the first time. Anyway, I mean he's had several lives and bodies. I thought it was pretty interesting that we kind of got a global warming adjacent theory that happens in here <laughs> where, you know, the the polar ice caps are not going to just get melted here. This is not what's going to happen is they're going to be obliterated and cause massive, massive immediate cases of uh, tides rising, as in like very large tidal waves hitting the coast. Yeah. And Jesse, I'm sure that had nothing to do with global warming because that would suggest that there were politics and comics at that uh, point. That can't happen here. What are your, any other thoughts here on this uh, on this issue? Just the odd ending with, well, Lucifer, uh, <laughs> he, he, knows, he knows that we can beat him. He's been humbled and uh, it's not like we can hurt humans. So see you later. Right. And and again, I wondered if that wasn't a, a Marvel method kind of thing where maybe the ending wasn't specifically stated and Kirby draws Lucifer walking off and stands like, oh, yeah, I guess they let him go. But uh, he can't be a threat anymore because he's uh, he's been humbled. Let me let me read the, a little bit from that final panel. Because we X-Men are pledged never to cause injury to a human being, no matter what the provocation. Well, the joke's on them, because according to. MarvelFandom.com. He's an alien. They could have heard oh, him all he wanted. Right. That's right. I forgot about that. So, all right then. The whole diffusing of the bomb. Boy, was that convoluted. Like, okay, Scott, 
two millimeters to the left. I mm-hmm. couldn't look at two millimeters. I have no, I mean, I would not know the distance even looking at it, <laughs> but whatever he, he was able to professor X and uh, Cyclops were able to barrel down and, and just take out this whole fuse in this bomb uh, with a very pinpoint shot. Con- uh, concussive blast and i so. gotta say that was actually i mean a, a little bit more intense than what i was expecting right um, i mean you know it may not be the most dramatic thing i've, I've ever read but i mean for uh, again for somebody who maybe looks back at these older comics as a little bit simpler uh that that was that was a pretty nice sequence all right anything else on this issue no i i mean like, like ff number 12 maybe not quite as classic but it was it was a lot of fun you know we're, we're, we're having some fun with it but i mean it's you can see in these you know the the building blocks of of the marvel universe and what you know people would continue to to extrapolate from it and it's a fun story it's maybe got got a, lo- a little more nuance and, and, co- and complexity than i was thinking it's it's yeah. not perfect but it's also not just you know drivel that doesn't hold up right absolutely i'll agree with you and it's stan lee and jack kirby stan lee and jack kirby on both of these issues that we've had so far so it doesn't get much more of a power couple than that when it comes to comics next up though we have Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number Two. We've got uh, the co-creator of both Speedball and Squirrel Girl, Steve Ditko. That is correct. The wondrous world of Doctor Strange, written and edited by the toast of Marvel, Stan Lee, <laughs> plotted and drawn by the boast of Marvel, Steve Ditko, lettered and bordered by the ghost of marvel <laughs> sam rosen the inker's uh, always got uh got a little shade in the uh in the credits on sale date june 1st of 1965 and like i said we're just covering this first story now bear with me because i don't think i wrote much of a synopsis here i just wrote kind of what happened in this book and i'm going to string together some words to try and make it coherent so here we go tell oh, me about zandu this was the first appearance of zandu okay he would, if I'm not mistaken, appear about nine years later, cross paths with not only Doctor Strange, but also uh, the Scarlet Witch at some point. Okay. And then he uh, he appeared nine years after that uh, for his third appearance. And his fourth appearance broke the nine-year streak when he appeared in, are you ready for it, Jesse? <laughs> Secret Defenders, number six through eight. Oh. In which he took on... Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, and the Scarlet Witch, all of whom had fought him before, and uh, Captain America, who Doctor Strange didn't draw out of his Magic Tarot card deck, so he said couldn't come along with them. I know it's not plug time, but if you want to find out more about those issues, uh, you can check out asterisk51.blogspot.com, where I'm working my way through the entire Secret Defenders series. That is right. That is right. Go check that out. So Xandu here shows up, and he recruits a couple thugs from this bar. Uh, these guys are like the toughest around, apparently. They licked everybody in this bar. Xander's like, you guys got some promise. How about you come with me? And they're like, what do you mean? And then he, he hits them with a hypnotism. He hits them, they hypnotize them, and now they become, well, his lackeys, for a better term. But they're kind of like, they're definitely zoned out. They're pretty powerful guys, but they're also now, under his power, can't feel any pain. Now, what's he going to use these guys for? Well, he's going to send them to the Sanctum Santorum in order to get the other half of the wand of Watum that apparently Dr. Strange has in his possession. They show up at the Sanctum Santorum and they're able to beat Dr. Strange. 
<laughs> uh, Xandu's powers, which he's able to see through these guys' eyes. Doctor Strange tries to use some kind of power to kind of create duplicates of himself, but they aren't fooled because Xandu is not fooled. And they take Strange, knock him out, and they grab the Wand of tomb and leave. Now, on the way out, Spider-Man happens to be outside, and he sees them walking outside and immediately is like, those guys... We're robbing the place. All oh, their sleepwalk. They look like they're sleepwalking, but I'm pretty certain they're robbers. Uh, they're they're thieves as well. Well, uh, in so- Spider-Man's defense, yeah, they, oh, they, they, they were coming out of a skylight. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, they were sleepwalking uh, out of, out of a skylight. So yeah, he, something strange is going on. That's going to that's probably going to tangle the Spidey sense. Yep. Doesn't show that, but either way, I'm I'm just going to say that that's there. He he's <laughs> Spider-Man. Spider-Man's on top of it now. He mixes it up with these guys, uh, but it turns out Spider-Man's not much of a match for him either, and he doesn't get completely beaten, but they're able to escape, but he's able to throw a spider tracer on them as they're walking away. So he's going to keep track track of them, and the two thugs end up coming back to Xandu, give him the other half of the wand, and the wand of Watum is finally reunited, giving Xandu this massive uh, power. Uh, now, Spider-Man's tracked these guys to Xandu, shows up, and makes and he gets into it with Xandu. But Xandu's like, nah, nah, I, how about you go and fight my two minions in a different dimension? And sends all three of them over into this different dimension. But before he gets banished, to put that in quotes, Spider-Man's able to grab the wand uh, with some webbing and pull it in there with him. So... Now Xandu doesn't have the wand. He's got to figure out a way to bring all three of these guys back in order to get this wand back. In the meantime, Doctor Strange recovers and he tracks Xandu and confronts him while Spidey still has to deal with these two guys in the other dimension. Finally, reappearing in front of Xandu and Doctor Strange. Xandu is able to grab a hold of the wand uh, and Strange immediately realizes I'm outmatched. He leaves his body in his astral form. Spider-Man's still fighting these two thugs throughout this whole issue. (laughs) They end up, I think, in the basement or they're somewhere. I can't remember exactly where they're at as these two guys are attacking him. Strange is in his astral form. He's like, I need to put a thought in Spider-Man's head in order for him to beat these guys. And so there's like this electrical wire, this freight electrical wire that is over on the wall. These two guys close in and Strange is like, hey, Spider-Man, you know, grab this wire and shock them. Use that electricity to shock these guys, and it should jock them out of Xandu's control. Sure enough, Spider-Man doesn't realize it's strange. Apparently had this brilliant thought himself, grabs the wire, and shocks these guys. And they wake up, so that's good. Spider-Man doesn't have to continue to fight these two guys. Now, both Spider-Man and Doctor Strange turn their attention towards Xandu. Strange returns to his body, joins Spidey against Xandu, and both are able to defeat him. Strange then grabs the wand and drains the wand of its power. Am I am I right there, Evan? Is that what he did? He like totally like drained it of its power, so it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. looks like it. It didn't okay. take though, because uh, the wand of Watum shows up uh, in in Xandu's other appearances. That's what I was going to say. I thought that this was something that I, I've heard this. I've heard of the wand of Watum before, so I know it's not like this is a one and done thing. But it looks like Strange, according to him, drains the wand of its power. Uh, And he also takes Xandu and puts him under a spell so that he will forget the evil of his ways. And that's kind of where we end the book, as I'll quote it one of the last panels. (laughs) One of my favorite lines ever. (laughs) I know. I've seen this before. You've posted this before. Yeah, yeah, I I usually post it with a a happy birthday message on Facebook. Okay. Yes, that's what it is. That's what it is. And you also heard it on the uh, Fox uh, Spider-Man cartoon when he teamed up with Doctor Strange. Oh, 
Okay. That's, right. that's the first place I heard it. And then later I, I read this issue and I was like, oh, that's where they got it. Dr. Strange is leaving. And as he leaves Spider-Man, he says, may the Vashanti watch over thee. Spider-Man says, and may your amulet never tickle. <laughs> uh, may your amulet never tickle. Great Which is stuff. a very Spider-Man thing to say when he <laughs> doesn't know what the heck to say. Yeah, he doesn't. He, it's you know, Spider-Man I, trying to spout some Doctor Strange dialogue. Five, six decades later, the, the thought bubble would have actually read, why did I say that? Or something along <laughs> those lines. So there you go. That is Spider-Man Annual Number Two: The Wondrous World of Doctor Strange. This was a good story. I I don't know much about the Zandu character coming into this, and you said it was his first appearance. First of at least four. <laughs> of at least four. Of at least four. Spider-Man. You know, it's it's cool to see him pal around with other heroes. I was talking earlier about how I thought that they hadn't met before. And there was a specific point in the dialogue where Spider-Man says, this feels like old times. I, I thought he was referencing like previous adventures with Doctor Strange. But let me find it specifically and see if I was incorrect, because I, there might be some context that I'm missing when I was reading it. I hear you, you talking, it? Doc. This is beginning to feel like old times. OK, so what's happening before that? There's got to be some context that well, I'm missing. Let's, let's see. Doctor Strange says, that's it, Spider-Man. Keep moving fast. Keep him off balance. It's our only chance against his deadly one. I hear you talking, Doc. This is beginning to feel like old times. I, I don't know. Okay. At first, I remember thinking this was like, oh, this is a pretty pedestrian Spider-Man, Doctor Strange team up. But you got to remember, this is the first one. So, you know, you and me and Chris a while back did that uh, Darkhawk Sleepwalker crossover where Spider-Man gets dropped into another dimension full of mindless ones and they have to pull him out. And at that point, it's kind of old hat, but this is, you know, Xandu puts Spider-Man in that portal and Spider-Man's kind of freaking out, but has the presence of mind to yoink the Wand of Watoom in there with him. I I mean, I dare say this is probably one of the first times you've seen Spider-Man in a setting like this. You're probably right. Now we're used to Spider-Man can be in any story. You know, Spider-Man can fight street level thugs and the Kingpin and cosmic creatures and be an Avenger. But this this was probably new territory for Spider-Man. So that's and I mean, there's a reason that Ditko's praised for all this weird Doctor Strange art. I mean, look at some of these things with the the thugs, you know, passing through these weird features you know, like the guy splashing into some red liquid just floating in the air. I mean, it's it's pretty wild, the stuff he, he comes up with here. Right. And putting Spider-Man right in the middle of it. So this was probably one of the first times people had seen Spider-Man in such an outlandish setting. You're right. Steve Ditko, these panels, like, you're, you're it's interesting to think of where your brain is at when you're like, okay, I'm going to do this guy coming out of just, like, nothing right now. I mean, yeah. if you're look, one of these panels, it, it just looks like body parts yeah. of these two thugs. There's nothing else there other than an arm and a torso. And maybe they're coming in through the the coming in through the, the blue, but it almost looks like they're just kind of floating out there in space. And then the rest of I mean, it is weird. Very, very, I want to say esoteric. Is that a word that would describe yeah. this? OK, yeah. it defies explanation. And that's obviously on purpose. But yeah. I mean. It looks fantastic. And yeah, you're right, man. It's, it is, it is very, very strange. (laughs) And I mean, you and me, we've seen Spider-Man and Dr. Strange team up in the comics. We've seen them in cartoons. We've literally seen them fight side by side in three live action movies. Right. 
this is the, the first time they've ever shared a page. I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of Spider-Man, but I, I've read a lot of the early issues, and I I don't know that you've that you've seen anything quite like this for Spider-Man before. Right. Yeah, we're off and running. This I mean, is the character's a, been around a little less than four years at this point, I think. Yeah, we get a lot of classic Doctor Strange in here, too. The Eye of Agamotto. Uh, we have the uh, Astral Form. You know, that mm-hmm. that's that's classic Doctor Strange. The Sanctum Santorum is a big thing. We get a lot of good stuff. If this is the first time you're seeing Doctor Strange, watch out, folks. Wait, what do you think is happening over there in that book? Yeah. Uh, that, <laughs> could you imagine, like, oh, this is Spider-Man, but what is happening over in Doctor Strange? Is, is this something you get every month? People were probably like, I want to check this out. Or some others were like, don't ever show this to me again. (laughs) I prefer my street level. And that was one thing, you know, back in the day, I will say, you know, I am known as the street level starch. I kind of shied away from books like Doctor Strange because, man, it just did not feel grounded enough for me. Mm. Um, And that's not a bad thing. It's just one of those personal preference things. Yeah. Yeah. I've never been much of a Doctor Strange on his own kind of guy now th- there have been some people that that did it well um but yeah i've never been just a hey i wonder what dr strange is up to mm-hmm, right a good issue all around i mean it, it's it's interesting it's it's neat to see these two heroes from really different uh backgrounds and a totally different power set come together in order to fight one guy uh well i should say fight one guy and his minions and have to you know, try to work together. And it's not like they have a problem. That's a good thing. These two, these two guys don't fight and then oh, decide yeah, to team up. Point. So yeah, <laughs> they actually get past that Marvel madness that happens between the two he- groups of heroes at first. It helps that Dr. Strange was unconscious for the first uh, half. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That is true. All right, man. Well, any other notes here on this one? No, no, it was pretty, pretty straightforward. But like I said, once you kind of consider it, its place in history, it, uh, it, it stands out a little more. Right. And may your amulet never tickle. I mean, I also don't know. <laughs> I don't know how. I don't know how else you can end a a book any any better. So there it is, man. The three issues that we decided to cover for our tribute to Stan Lee. Uh, you got any final thoughts? It just, I mean, the, these were loads of fun. You know, I, I, I don't want to get into splitting hairs over how much of it was Stan, how much of it was Jack or Steve Ditko. I mean, it doesn't work without without all of them. A lot of fun. We we might think we're more sophisticated now, but there's, like I said, there's a lot of great building blocks for, for what was to come. They had a lot of, a lot going on, a lot of subplots and, and texture to it. And uh, just, it was uh, really fun to kind of see the, the formative years of some of these characters and see them start on their way to what they are now. And so ends part one of our celebration of what would have been Stan the Man Lee's 100th birthday. But Evan and I are not done. Check out the second part and a separate episode where Evan and I break down our personal top five Stan Lee cameos. We are also celebrating with some other Superblog Team Up members. Just type in hashtag SBTU on Twitter to find some other great blogs and podcasts honoring the life of Stan Lee. Thanks for joining us. All of this would not be possible without W2Mnet.com, so make sure to seek them out for more podcasts. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please feel free to share, and we look forward to entertaining you again soon.